and welcome back to Equity, a TechCrunch podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. This is our Friday show, so I'm joined by the crew. With me, I have Mary Ann Azevedo repping Austin, Texas. Mary Ann, how are you doing? Doing great, Alex. How's it going? Um, this has been the single longest week in the history of technology, and we are powering <laughs> through, and we have lots to talk about today, uh, which is why I'm glad, Mary Ann, we brought along with us Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello. How are you? Hey. You know, lots of nuance this week and lots of numbers. So can't complain. We asked for it. Yeah. Someone say. Uh, you know, we did. Uh, we've tempted fate and fate has come through. <laughs> All right. Um, before we actually get into the show, we are going to talk about deals from Maven, Patreon and Prefabs. We're going to talk about Launch House, Europe and Twitter. But first, this morning or Thursday morning now, by the time you hear this, big news is that Adobe is buying Figma for a stonking huge amount of money, $20 billion. Um, I have a take, but I'm curious before we uh, get into that, were you too surprised by this announcement? Yeah, I mean, it's a massive exit. And I, I think nobody expected a $20 billion uh, acquisition <laughs> these days. Um, one of the things I find interesting, though, is Rod Miller talked to Figma's CEO and said that he really got the impression that he's happy about the deal beyond just the money. I mean, of course, he wouldn't be happy about that, but um, that he feels like it's a really good move for the company and that it's going to kind of remain a semi-autonomous entity inside of Adobe. And so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. As they always say. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. I do think the money obviously was what woke me up. I completely missed this news. But then my friend was like, Adobe Figma? And I was like, no way. To see Figma exit for double its last private valuation, uh, half stock, half cash, which I don't know. Is that pretty standard? Yeah, that feels that feels pretty standard for a deal of this size. I mean, Adobe is not going to be sitting on $20 billion in cash. Yeah. Because uh, that would just be an inefficient way to kind of fund its business. So half stock, half cash, that feels fine to me. What else should we be thinking about the deal? To me, it's just a letdown. Like, it's great for Figma. It's great for its investors. Everyone's going to make a lot of money. Huzzah. But like the, the thing about startups that I really care about it is their ability to kill off incumbents, right? And here instead, we're seeing the incumbent essentially absorb the challenger. And to me, that's always going to be a little bit of a letdown because I would like to see Figma kill Adobe, you know, by making something so much better that the old generation doesn't get maintained via the power of incumbency, but instead gets crushed under the boot of innovation. So we don't get that this time. Do you feel like Figma's sold out? Yes, for $20 billion. I guess technically. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> Literally. Yeah, I mean, Marianne, like with all, all the love and respect, uh, how could they not, how could we not construe this as selling out? I know. Yeah. Just had to hear you say it. Adobe's just Microsoft with a bigger image focus, right? Like, I mean, if you sell to Microsoft, you're not not going corporate, you know? I, I so. feel like obviously I know we're kidding a little bit maybe, but the, the selling out to me doesn't encompass the idea that an exit might be the best strategy. Like a lot of egos exist in stars, which we'll get to later. So that's my like, I guess, other perspective is like maybe this just made the most sense for Figma and that uh, mm -hmm. that was what made sense. I, I don't know any, enough about Adobe to know why the synergies overlap. So <laughs> that's something I'm excited yeah. to read. Hopefully Ron yeah. is working on something. I'm sure you're working on something. The, the, the brief version of this is Adobe took a, a material percentage of its market cap, roughly, uh, crap, I forget the number, 14% somewhere in there, and used it as a way to defang a potential company killer. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's how to think about this. Adobe is paying a lot of money in like revenue multiple terms, but they're really buying a strategic competitor, and mm -hmm. that's 
that's smart. That's a good thing for the company to do, in my view. Yeah. Uh, but as a startup watcher, as someone who really wanted that Figma S1, <laughs> that, that IPO finally, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a bummer. And, you know, it turns out Figma is one of the best performing private market companies out there. You know, 100% ARR growth, 400 million ARR at the end of this year, cash flow positivity. Like, I mean, there's a lot to love about wow. it. And yeah. it would have been a, a kick-ass IPO. Yeah. Um, but we, we won't see it. Instead, we'll get to see it as a line item in Adobe earnings. <laughs> Congratulations, everybody. Well done. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's turn back to the micro and talk about some startups. First up is a, a change of pace, Natasha. Uh, at Maven, and I am fascinated by this change. Yeah, Maven was that 2020 edtech startup that launched with a good bit of buzziness. It is all about scaling cohort-based class platforms. So its vision was really, can we get your favorite creators, Twitter influencers with massive audiences to create a class to peel back you know, their specialty? Um, and that was two years in the making. They raised $25 million from Andreessen, first round others. And they came up to me this week saying that they're pivoting from their original pitch, basically admitting that the hypothesis that a creator with a big audience will have a great chorus and be a great teacher and have the impact they want it to have on students is wrong. And now they're going to be going Mm -hmm. towards experts. So, I mean, I'll pause there because the pivot to the OG is is a topic. Okay. I have to say... um I think this was an excellent move. I've always kind of doubted Maven's previous model um, and questioned just because uh, a creator has a lot of followers or is charismatic on social media does not mean they are going to make a great instructor, does not always translate into teaching people. So I, I feel like this was kind of a necessary move for Maven or else it probably would have just cratered and shut down. I was impressed in the story that uh, that TechCrunch wrote to see they sold, I think, around $9 million worth of class value in the last 18 months, which is great. I mean, that that shows traction. And so to kind of turn away from that towards a new model uh, takes a bit of bravery. And also, it does take some real gumption to say up front, no BS, all right, we got that bit wrong. We're going to be doing this now instead of a variation of the same theme, but certainly not the exact same melody. Yes, exactly my read. I think they're still betting on different definitions of teacher. It's still not going to be only the professors or the like classically trained teachers, it it may now be like the leaders within tech companies who are used to giving meetings, are used to having direct reports. And that model to me still feels like they're, you know, their investors are probably not, what the heck, we didn't bet on this company, but they're probably like, this is a little less of a a moonshot in some ways. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in like, kind of like what you said, Alex, where it's like, I respect the transparency there. So that, that was like, I was just kind of excited and refreshed to see a pivot. Yeah, I have a question about this because I I had put Maven in the back of my mind as part of the the broader edtech slash creator boom we saw during COVID, which was very intellectually interesting. But now it seems to be not quite the same level of uh, attention that we're that, that we saw before. Uh, is is Maven building a kind of now upscale DIY masterclass, and before it was doing like more casual DIY masterclass? I think that's a great comparison. I actually asked Gaga and Biani, their co-founder during the call, where they put themselves between On Deck, which tried to upskill professionals, and Masterclass, which is trying to make it all live and scalable. And he he did admit basically that they always, you know, wanted to and thought of themselves as like a more serious education company, but it's super fair to say that they're getting less aw- more away from entertainment and more towards serious ed tech, which I mean, yeah, for my pedagogy senses is a good feeling <laughs> to see. I, and it's also, yeah, it was the critique that Marianne, you brought up, they've always had. Is is it going to be, it's, it's pretty hard to do, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm curious if it's pedagogy or pedagogy. Uh, I don't actually know. 
Thank God we're not in that profession. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of changes at the world of creators, Patreon this week announced a relatively stiff number of layoffs, uh, 17% or kind of roughly one-sixth of the company is going to be let go. And we'd also heard recently that Patreon was making changes to its security um, setup by letting go its internal team and I think leaning more on external tooling, if I understand where that story is coming. This is uh, part of what I think of as the Natasha layoff beat. Um, but I wanted to go ahead and just think about it in terms of you know, here we are seeing a company that is building a recurring revenue stream, taking a portion of it, um, changing its staffing goals in the near term, which to me implies probably slower than anticipated growth. And my question from this is, does that mean that the creator economy is in effect not living up to investor and startup expectations? I mean, I think it goes back to kind of the point that we were making with Maven. Right now, we're, we're in a very different environment, market. We're not in the middle of a pandemic where we're all just at home, you know, as bored as we used to be. Um, and, you know, money is a little tighter for most people. So I think when you're looking to cut your budget and you're, you're weighing essentials <laughs> um, and you have a, a subscription to a creator, I mean, unfortunately, that's probably going to be one of the first things you cut, right? 100%. Like, I think with layoffs, it can be like this weird thing where, I want to say, I see a 20% layoff. That means fintech is struggling. Creator economy is struggling. And I think that's always true to a certain degree. Um, but what I have kind of, what I did kind of notice is in this layoff, it really impacted their international talent. Um, and to me, that felt less like a specifically niche response to them struggling to get people to renew contracts or to bet on creators and more like Patreon, like a ton of companies is not going to be as experimental with its growth or ambitious with its growth. And so maybe it's just doubling down on what's not new and what's already hitting these different milestones. Yeah. Taking fewer flyers on expanding sales and marketing in Europe and hoping to kind of grow that market maybe in advance of the creator economy there reaching similar per capita scale as the US. I, all that makes sense. It's just it's disappointing. I mean, we're talking about 80 people and we're talking about a company that raised a bunch of money relatively recently. And so this is one of those kind of crappy decisions that you have to make. But it does seem that over hiring uh, in the 2021 era was, I was going to say pandemic, but that just seems slightly rude, um, was legion. It, it was everywhere. And it was across multiple industries, Natasha, not mm -hmm. just fintech, not just the creator economy, but really it kind of seems that everyone overhired. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. The 20% number like keeps coming and uh, it's brutal. I mean, Snap just laid off people too. I think we are seeing the the startups in like the broader creator focused economy having to make those layoffs maybe differently than Marianne. I feel like some of the bigger fintechs at the same size, same age are not. And I don't know there's like a connective tissue to make there, but I am a little like some of the some of the unicorns that I expected to have layoffs candidly are not having layoffs, and I'm like, what's happening there? Yeah, obviously, I, I we could start a whole other conversation, but if there are companies that can help people or other businesses save money, cut costs, they're more likely to be resilient right now. Whereas companies like this one, that you know, not diminishing what it's doing by any means, but again, we're talking about luxury sort of purchasing or subscriptions versus like necessity. And so again, those those companies that can really show tangible value in terms of helping someone save, then they're more likely to do okay, I guess. You know, 
this reminds me a lot of the vitamin versus aspirin framing that we see a lot in the world of business software. Like, are you selling a vitamin, which is a, a nice to have, or are you selling an mm-hmm. aspirin? And I wonder if in the consumer space, that dichotomy doesn't really fit and everything's kind of just vitamins of varying degrees of impact. And if that's the case, the revenue will always be more variable based on macro conditions. Am I wrong in saying that Patreon is definitely people's livelihoods though? Like beyond the people who work at Patreon, creators need and lean on Patreon fully for kind of their community and how they make money. That That's what I feel like is difficult. So obviously like to like jump into being a creator right now, maybe that's not, Patreon's not getting net new people, but maybe I, I still am thinking about the people who've been on Patreon for forever because it's an old company. And I'm like, their livelihoods haven't probably gone away. So that seems difficult. Like it is kind of a fintech company too that provides people a livelihood if we take away all the branding. Every company, every company is a fintech company. True. Sorry, had to say that. No, I mean, you're, you're not only that, but it's a subscription fintech company, which is yeah. apparently everything. Um, <laughs> so I was curious about that, the question you asked, Natasha. And so I, I had pulled up a, uh, a Forbes article discussing um, the $4 billion valuation that Patreon had put together. And according to this Forbes piece, the company had distributed around a billion dollars in, I think, 2020. So when we ask about, you know, can people, you know, build their a creator-focused lifestyle business around Patreon? I believe the answer is, is yes. I don't know how big of a pool that is, but I mean, certainly if that's a 2020 number, it's gone up. And so the amount of money flowing through Patreon does, I think, give it the scale of being a place where people can generate um, at least a, a chunk of their livelihood uh, on a per-person basis. And so I, I hope that this is not indicative that that Patreon's model has reached a, a growth um slowing point, but instead more of a, we should be more profitable. Everyone's talking about that. Let's trim staff and and focus down on what's working. Um, But if we're going to talk about uh, trimming down and focusing on what's working, somehow, Marianne, after the implosion of Katera, prefab is not dead. And I am perplexed, shocked, happy, and incensed by this. So talk to me. (laughs) It's it's not dead at all. Uh, I've written about uh, numerous prefab companies that have raised money over the past year or so. Paul, our uh, one of our London reporters, covered a UK startup called Modulus um, that is is doing is giving housing developers, construction companies a way to configure, design modular homes. Um, a few things that I thought was interesting about this. One of the most capital intensive things about construction or building is, you know, you have its materials and, and like having to figure out, you know, where you're going to build and all this. So what, what Modulus is doing, it's, first of all, it's got really sounds like very interesting software specific to each building site. And then they've built this like kit of parts. So they deliver this kit of parts. Developers can like build multi-tenant apartment blocks, right? And instead of having to set up factories in these remote random locations, um, the the supply chain partners deliver what they call sub-assemblies to facilities close to the building site, which they're leasing. So they save money that way too. There's there's a lot of reasons why this is supposed to be good. Um, it's good, better for the environment, less materials. Um, helps address the housing shortage. So, I mean, I, I'm here for prefab. Uh, in, in theory, I think it has to be done right to be successful. Obviously, Katera didn't do something right, but I'm not saying that it's, it's right. It's not, it's not bad overall. I think it could be great, if, again, if it's done correctly. Do you guys remember why Katera fell apart? It's like kind of a distant memory in the back of my head. So, I mean, and I guess like the reason I'm asking candidly is, is this company differentiated and surprising to you guys enough where it's not surprising to see it get funded after Katera's collapse. 
You know, I have to I have to think back, but I I don't remember Alex. Do you? I feel like there was just a lot of poor uh, poor decisions around. Spending. I think I think the thing that Katera wanted to do, and I'm I'm contentedly over my skis here, so please send all of your complaints to um, someone else, just not me. Uh, but Katera was trying to do the prefab construction itself, so it was going to prefab a lot of the like wall panels and so forth. And while I was reading about modulus. Uh, my impression, and I, I need to press Paul about this because I, I'm curious about the, the nuance of the model itself, but it doesn't seem to have quite as much exposure to the creation of components themselves. And I wonder if having a slightly higher level, more software-ish focus, again, if I'm reading and understanding the, the, mm -hmm. the model correctly, it's a more durable corporation. And Katera also raised SoftBank money and then tried to go boom, and then actually it went boom, and then, you know, didn't go so well. Yeah, good point. I mean, Modulus is not... It's helping the developers build with it, you know, with its software and these kits. It's not doing the building itself. Which is smart because construction's hard and probably lower margin than software. So, you know, if you're going to build a company that's going to grow quickly, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, last thought here is that the housing shortage, according to the piece, is uh, 4 million houses in the U.S. and 5 million in the U.K. And the U.K. has like a small fraction of the U.S.'s population. So, oh, my God, build some houses. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about something that's a little bit more difficult. And so we're going to leave you with a small uh, preamble about this. And if you don't want to listen to it, you can just skip to the next segment. Yes. So before we jump into the next segment, just wanted to give all listeners a quick trigger warning that we are going to be talking about sexual assault and harassment. So we will not be offended if you want to avoid this content altogether. Skip to the 30 minute mark. All right, let's talk about Launch House. I mean, this news broke Sunday evening, a Vox investigation by Rebecca Jennings. And it's been a company that I've covered since the beginning of the pandemic because Launch House really spun out as an answer to hacker homes. Do you guys remember when we were first talking mm. about hacker homes coming back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people kind of coming together in, in one domicile um, as a loose group and doing stuff in either in coordination with one another or at least in proximity with other folks who had a similar techish startupy entrepreneurial mindset. Exactly. So that in-person physical home, let's rent Paris Helton's Beverly Mansion idea ended up getting venture funding pretty soon after starting and eventually getting even more venture funding led by Andreessen Horowitz. Other investors include Flybridge Capital um, and a bunch of other big names in tech that um, we'll talk about later. So this company has all like those buzzy factors of being a community-focused, VC-backed, Andreessen-led company. And the Vox story unpacked the fact that there's multiple allegations swarming around just basically the abuse of power that is happening within the house. So there were reports of possible drugging, of sexual assault, of there just not being security or a safe place for founders who entered the homes to exist and work. And just from the co-founders end, there was a lot of allegations of an abuse of power. And so a lot of kind of the fears and question marks around hacker homes and what does it mean to grow really fast and gain VC funding and notoriety, candidly, as co-founders during a pandemic, we saw play out now, I guess, around two years after I first heard about Launch House. Yeah. I mean, when, first of all, I might be dating myself, but when I first heard about this, I thought about um, MTV's The Real World. Are you guys, do you remember that? Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> okay. So like MTV came up with this reality show where they paired all these people up in a house yes. and then, you know and the rest of us would watch it in kind of fascination and horror. Um, but this really, that's the first thing I thought of. Um, and then like a $12.9 million mansion in Beverly Hills, that kind of says it 
all to me. Like, you know, if you're if you're really serious about trying to build a startup, build community, I mean, do you have to do it in a $13 million mansion in Beverly Hills? Like what what is your goal here? Question that I had was just about the model of of the company. Because if they were offering two ways to join the community, one was I think like a one thousand dollar yearly fee or three K to arrive for a month, the, the amount of cash flow that could be generated from community per se doesn't seem to me to be too great. Right. And given that they're renting, you know, eight figure mansions, their expenses must have been relatively high. So I I wonder if some of the issues that came up involving maintenance, security, and so forth, things that are pretty important if you're providing housing, you know, which is a very specific thing. I I wonder if there was a disconnect between venture economics and expectations and the reality of what was being built. And if those tensions led to just poor oversight, bad decisions, and a lot of of mistakes, some of which appear to be less than benign. You're spot on. That tension between lots of spending and being in the housing world. And then also what Marianne brought on, you're actually, you're so right in bringing up real world as an example because Launch House actually began, something people aren't talking about, Launch House really began as trying to be a reality show. It, mm-hmm. you know, it was gonna set up cameras and it was gonna do pool live streams. And a lot of that color when it's being launched uh, to the public in the first you know, month, it just sounds kind of like scrappy build in public vibes. But as you see it scale, as you see people get, tens of millions of venture capital. It feels a lot tougher. Um, I want to talk about the like idea of what this means for companies that are trying to disrupt uh, community. We've talked about them so much in the company. I feel like Launch House is one extreme, not just for its allegations, but because it is like this in-person hacker home, um, renting out mansions, and from day one has wanted to get attention and be buzzy and have this allure around it. How do we feel about what that does to the rest of the companies in this sector? Well, when I hear the word community, mostly it's in a Web3 context these days. People in the the, the blockchain decentralized uh, economic world love to talk about, um, it's all about community, which, which seems to be about spending time in some social context with like-minded folks who are either believing in the same idea or chasing the same profit. And, and by the way, P-R-O-F-I-T there, not profit as in religion. And that's all digital though, mostly. I mean, there are crypto conferences and so forth, but community mostly means a, a vaguely moderated Discord server. Uh, community in this case is, is something very different. And I think we just saw the wing um, cease to exist yes. relatively recently. That was another mm-hmm. uh, a, a very different to be clear, attempt at providing real world locations where folks could congregate uh, that had a similar ethos, vibe or whatever. And I I wonder if just simply put, real world community is not a venture backable business. And so to me, my my takeaway is that from this, Mm -hmm. apart from a lot of other stuff to be clear, but just answering the question. No, that's, I think that's an awesome uh, conclusion, Alex. And and wasn't Launch House also focused on like Web3? You're right. The allegations that are coming to light are, to me, evergreen relevant. If you did something a year ago, it doesn't go away because it's a year ago. But I will say they, around a year ago, started pivoting to more digital focused events and community. And they introduced their online membership. And some of the allegations existed only when they had that in-person experience. The handling still happened poorly, reports say, when they were in person. But the, the reason I'm saying that is, Alex, like they probably had that realization too. They were like, we can't do this in person. 
there's a lot of like innate challenges with trying to get founders in a professional setting to live in a house together. I mean, that was like the criticism from day one. I don't think anyone was surprised reading the story, um, unfortunately. Yeah, but also like, like I, I guess tone is an important thing that I think about here. There, there's a mythos in Silicon Valley, and by that I mean the broader technology community slash world, about scrappy beginnings and working out of subpar locations to build the next big thing. There's like various garages and small buildings in, in and around the Cupertino Menlo Park Palo Alto area where HP was founded or Apple or whatever. Why do you need to live in Paris Hilton's old house to do something interesting? To me, it, it just, it, it's a it's a beacon attracting the less serious, maybe, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm not going to, to make any assumptions about the people who participated, obviously. But my concern with what we were talking about earlier is that other incubators, other types of organizations trying to build community that weren't necessarily trying to seek so much attention or be so buzzy are going to really be hurt by this. Um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the story since it came out and especially in light of how many people are talking about it on Twitter and sharing like, Oh, I heard the, I heard about this. I heard about that. I heard about other things. There seems to be a lot of, of grist in this particular mill, but content moderation is very hard, right? I would say community moderation in a digital context is, is, a, is an entire level higher and harder. And then to curate physical spaces and provide security uh, with even an additional uh, digital layer community on top of that is probably very, very, very hard. And so I don't think this model is impossible. I just think you have to have the right skill set and right focus uh, mm -hmm. if you're going to go ahead and approach it and probably also not raise venture money. 100%. I mean, let's talk about venture money real quick before we move to the next section, because a lot of the allegations we're hearing about are a lot of the concerns and probably reasons why people haven't started hacker homes or we don't see why Combinator creating, you know, an Airbnb for all their founders to go into every batch. Uh, and so I've been really interested in the actual silence from LaunchHouse's investors around like what happened to this co-living company that they poured money into and are now seeing face some very serious allegations. What do you guys think the VC reaction is right now? Have you seen anything that I'm missing? I mean, that's unsurprising. I think a lot of these firms who who can't wait to get pressed when it's something positive um, clam up when there's negative publicity like this. That's just not surprising. It's so ironic. <laughs> it, well, it's it's infuriating. Um, I'm not it's it's not surprising. I also I also wonder how much information was flowing back to especially smaller investors. You know, people who wrote a smaller tech in the company probably didn't have information rights. Oh. So they probably didn't have the same information. But we haven't heard a lot from backers on the record or not via counsel, I think is maybe the way to phrase this based on what I'm hearing from around from folks. But there does seem to be a response. It just doesn't seem to be a, a publicly worded one that might be useful. Yes. And let's just remember, we have precedent here with Dispo. Um, again, a very different kind of situation, but David Dobrik, the founder, was included in a Business Insider investigation where they unveiled that one of the members of his vlog squad that he worked with had allegations against them. David Dobrik stepped down. A lot of venture capitalists then said, we are severing all ties with Dispo and we will donate any future proceeds from potential returns on Dispo to um, different nonprofits, especially around assault prevention. That's true. So That's like, right. that is what I am holding on to right now to see if it's happening. I'm not saying I'm voting for anything necessarily, but like we have an example. 
we have something. That's true. There's a positive precedent. Yes. And you are welcome to follow it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, here's the lamest segue I think we've ever had on the show. Speaking of venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> Is that us every <laughs> sentence? We should do that for like April Fool's. <laughs> it's like speaking of startup. You know what we should do for April Fool's actually? We should we should just do a show in which every company we talk about is a made up company. We're like, have you heard that Sleep Splop raised a $48 billion series Q from Bibbidi Bop? And then people would be like, holy Bibbidi Bop, we haven't pitched them yet. Um, Anyways, speaking about Alphabet Soup and venture capital firms, uh, Europe is is very active. And we want to talk about Europe from a particular context today, which is that in the old days, there was a lot of conversation about how if you were in Europe, you might want to move your founders to America, or you might want to move a chunk of your business to the United States so you can attract money from uh, a larger, more mature, and more active uh, bucket of, of of capital access, essentially. That's changed a lot. Now, a lot of American investors go to Europe to invest. But lately, Natasha and Marianne, we have seen quite a number of investors uh, popping up in Europe or raising bigger and larger funds with a focus on Europe, yes, but also a sub-regional focus on Europe, looking at different parts of that particular continent, which to me, when we consider the Runa Capital News, the EQT News, and um, this uh, other 70 million euro fund, to me, it really seems that the European startup uh, investing market has matured to the point of being um, entirely self-sufficient. Yeah. I mean, I was reading about Runa Capital, and after 12 years in the US, they were based in Palo Alto. They picked up and they moved their headquarters to Luxembourg um, because it wants to refocus its attention on the European market. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a surprise, Natasha, given the historical epicenter of startup being not just the US, but one small part of California. Oh my God, yeah. I. It's actually great timing for us to be talking about this because I just met Deal's co-founder, Sho Wang, for coffee um, in San Francisco this week, a rare San Francisco visit for her. And she was explaining how it's, one, we're seeing a lot of US-based companies treat their international talent a lot more seriously. So it's not just contractors. It's not just part-time people or ambitious bets. It's like full-time operations. Um, but the more interesting part was she was like, it's not just the U.S. hiring outside. People are like from from internationally are like starting to look more at U.S. talent and starting to base their own focus international, which I think is just helpful for us three based in the U.S. to remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we are not the center of the world anymore. And that is so refreshing um, mm-hmm. to see it happen. OK, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'll dispute that just for the sake of of, of being contrary. Um, the United States is still by far the leading market for technology investment. And I would say for startup capital formation, uh, company building, and as we saw from the deal today for mega acquisitions, right? I mean, Figma is based in San Francisco and was bought by Adobe, which is an American company. Uh, I agree that there is now less gravitic draw yes. to the United States than there was before. India is now huge. Europe is huge. Uh, we've talked a lot about Africa on the show and how you know capital investment over there has exploded along with a, an enormous boom of, of activity. Latin America, all this matters. And I would just say the US still matters the most, but Europe now matters more to the point in which as we break down the US into Midwest, East Coast, West Coast, Southeast, Southwest, we're now talking about Southeast Europe versus, say, just France, Germany and the UK. It makes me happy to see like Zoom investing. I'm sure that's not the only thing, but Zoom investing probably speeding up that innovation. And Marianne, I know in the fintech world, 
that's probably you're probably constantly being drawn into Europe. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I was of course I have to bring fintech into it, don't I? I mean, <laughs> definitely Europe has been known for a long time to be way ahead of the US when it comes to to fintech. So, from that respect, Europe is uh, winning that race, I think, and the US is been scrambling to uh, catch up. So I don't I don't know how much any of that has to do with its success over like the past couple of years. But it's an interesting trend to see. I mean, I we're, we're so used to foreign VC firms opening offices in San Francisco or Palo Alto or Menlo Park. Um, so it's just kind of it's kind of cool and refreshing to see the opposite happening right now. Oh, yeah. I think like I did a little extra credit homework before the show. <laughs> Alex, you'll appreciate this. And I, I do. Was, I was looking at the um, amount of money that fintechs in Europe raised. And it was basically like data from DealRoom shows that fintech companies in Europe raised a total of $13.5 in the first half of this year, surpassing 2021's first half, which was $13.4 billion. So small increase, but an increase, guys. Like, right. right. That's crazy. I am so excited by it. <laughs> right. Framing that, I mean, if a company sells for 2x its final private market price, people often say, like, it's a strong exit, but the most recent investors probably were hoping for a, a larger return on their capital than that. And it would be considered kind of a, nah. But in 2022, to double a 2021-era valuation, which is what Figma did, is a complete coup, right? And that, I think, is the important year-over-year context in this case and why Natasha is so dead on with this. Um, as a last point about this before we move on to Twitter, what really struck me from kind of the collection of stories that we're discussing, which we'll link in the show notes, is that we're seeing funds of all sizes. So, like, Yes, 500 Istanbul did rebrand to 500 uh, Emerging Europe with a 70 million euro fund, but also we're seeing EQT put together a a multi-billion euro vehicle. And so we're seeing capital from the earlier stages through the later stages, implying that maturity that Europe has always kind of, I think, been reaching for. So that Mm -hmm. way you don't just reach Series B and then have to get on a plane to San Francisco or New York. And so that that is super clutch. And and shout out to Europe for pulling this off. Um, And I really hope that the macroeconomic and energy situation in Europe does not uh, dampen the entrepreneurial spirit of of the place. Maybe should they, they should get some hacker homes, but I actually completely take it back. They do not need <laughs> hacker homes. No one needs hacker homes, people. <laughs> I mean, I mean, living with your friends and, and making stuff is cool. Yeah. Living with people you don't know. Look, yeah. I don't want my dogs around half the time. I'm like out of my house, so I can't imagine. <laughs> but I'm also old and stodgy now, so you know. No, I completely feel you. I'm like way too selfish to have an animal. Anyways. <laughs> Welcome to Equity Confessions Edition. <laughs> Miriam, what is your take on pets, by the way? I feel like I don't know well, this about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have no choice because my daughter's highly allergic. Uh, um, okay. Although my son recently got a hamster, so. Um, but no, but to the point of like, yeah, I mean, it's hard enough to live with people you love more than... <laughs> In life <laughs> so to like decide voluntarily to live with a bunch of random strangers uh no thank you i i think i think this is not that model of living going like like remember college like i had roommates in college i loved it that's Sometimes different it well that's <laughs> different it's different because you, you were younger and you had lower standards that's i <laughs> now you expect Maybe. things to be where you left them yeah and things to be clean that's true and organized yeah, like now you want your spoons to match. You know, like things have changed. And you're, when you're in college, if you have a spoon, you're winning. Speaking about mess, 
Let's talk about Twitter. <laughs> oh, See, good one. Good that's segue. a good segue. Um, all right. A brief update for everyone before we let you go. Uh, Marianne, Natasha, there has been a new chapter in the great saga of Elon Musk um, first forcing Twitter to sell itself and now Twitter forcing Elon to buy it, uh, which is that Twitter shareholders have approved the $44 billion buyout that Elon Musk is still trying to shirk like it is a union contract at a Tesla manufacturing facility. <laughs> I, I mean, my brain still hurts every time I read about this. And it just, for some reason, I, it just, it perplexes me so much. Like here's, here's someone like trying so hard to buy a company that doesn't want to be bought, fights, fights, fights for it, and then like changes his mind. And then all these reluctant people and this reluctant company freaks out, is pissed off, is now trying to force him to buy it. I don't know, all the back and forth. It just like why do you why would you want someone who doesn't want to own you to own you? Is it it's all a financial thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the G-R-E-E-D, I believe, is the the <laughs> explanation of that one. Um essentially for people who are not sure what we're talking about, uh Elon offered a premium over the then trading price of Twitter, which is very standard for an acquisition. You have to pay more than it's currently worth because investors won't sell to you for at cost because they bought shares expecting upside in time. And uh, then the stock market um, laid an egg, I guess is the phrase. And uh, now it seems like a very expensive price for the social media company, especially in light of Snap's layoffs and Snap's revenue growth issues and so forth. And suddenly... Uh, we've turned the tables and we have been watching the the mess ever since. Uh, I don't know where this is going. I do know that Elon is uh, is well-resourced in his attempt to escape. Yes. I mean, my takeaway as someone who tunes into this only when it shows up on our script magically is, <laughs> is that the takeaways are not going to stop. And there's, yeah, like, like Alex just said, Twitter is still taking Elon Musk to court. There's many obstacles. The fact that the vote went through and shareholders approved the buyout offer is just one step forward. It is not the step yes. forward. No, uh, I don't think anyone actually knows where this is going no. to go. And I, I wonder, I really wonder if, to Marianne's point, if, to your point, Twitter just wants Elon to pay an enormous financial penalty and so it can restock its cash supply. And if all of this is essentially them forcing Elon towards the deal until he surrenders or buys it. Yeah, I mean, and also like last thing I'll say on this, I, I still maintain that like it's like being in a bad relationship with or being in a relationship with someone who doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. Like, I just don't think anything good can come out of that. Oh, yeah. Like I, who, who thinks Elon's going to be a good steward of Twitter when he's trying to frantically get out of buying it? You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. It, it's a mess. It's uh, and it's not a mess that brings um, what was that? That sparks joy. It does not spark joy for anybody, <laughs> unless you're a Twitter shareholder who wants to have a nice premium on your current equity holdings. That is our show for today. By the time you hear this, we will have also recorded a special crossover episode with our dear friends over at Chain Reaction, the TechCrunch crypto web three Bitcoin ETH focused podcast all about the merge. And that will be coming out in due time. So stay tuned for that. And uh, in the meantime, Natasha Marianne, let's head off into this weekend. Yay. Bye. <laughs> bye. No looking back. <laughs> bye. <laughs> <laughs> Slip computer. <laughs>